You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. This is your host, Adam Keith, joined by Matt Dye. We're live and on location today. I uh, had to make a Location? A on location. We are <laughs> in a hotel room. In a hotel room. <laughs> um, we are in a hotel room doing podcast number Lucky 13. Lucky 13. And we are excited for today's um, podcast. It's going to be our first, uh, we're going to have our first guest appearance with Matt Ross from QDMA. And we've kind of set this up. We've, you've heard us talk now for 12 podcasts about food plots, timber management, old field management, all kinds of different turkey things. Turkey hunting. Turkey fall, hunting. You know, all kinds of it. different stuff. And uh, the first guest we're having on, we wanted to talk timber management because a lot of deer hunters are in areas of, of timber. And sometimes I think, <clears throat> excuse me, sometimes I think that we get a little more focus on food plots um, than we should. Not saying food plots are bad, but they're a great hunting tool. And sometimes, in most cases, they're mainly just a hunting tool because they're just flat out aren't that many acres dedicated to food plots. And Matt, you look yeah, like you have something you want to basically, say. Basically, to me, I just, you know, when we approach a property, we don't want the focus to be on a food plot when you're, you know, maybe managing five, 10 acres of 200, maybe 250 less, acres. Maybe less than 3% of the property. Correct. So I want to do bang for the buck, I want to hit the timber. But I want to do it right. And there's a lot of different resources out there to tell you, you know, okay, this has been official for you know a certain amount of time. This is what you can see in timber. But I want a well-rounded, knowledgeable person to be able to talk about it because they're probably tired of hearing us talk about timber management and this and that, select cuts, um, clear cuts, and what you might expect to see in prescribed fire. Matt Ross has got a long history of you know, forestry. He's got a forestry degree, uh, but also, you know, without having to say he's a wildlife deer manager and he knows the ins and outs um, the common practices the ways to go about um, getting the desired results in your timber and making them productive stands for both getting money and for producing um, forage and cover in your woods so let's just get him on let's just talk to him about it yeah let's let's hear from him here we go good morning good morning matt how are you Good. How are you doing, Matt? We are doing well. I got Adam on the phone here with me. We are live and talking to our our podcast listeners, and uh, we just want to welcome you to the podcast. Again, you are our first guest on the Land and Legacy Habitat Management Podcast, so welcome. Thank you very much. I'm uh, happy to be here and uh, looking forward to it. Well, good deal. Let's get started on talking about 
what your role is at QDMA. What do you do on a day-to-day basis? What are your kind of um, your goals that you want to accomplish throughout a year? And what you know your job title? Give people an idea of what you do. All right. Well, uh, I've been with QDMA uh, for 11 years, and for the bulk of that time, I've been in the role of uh, my title is Certification Programs Manager. Of course, I wear a, a bunch of hats uh, outside of that role, but my primary responsibility is running uh, a couple programs that QDMA has in our Education and Outreach Department. The first is our Dear Steward series, which is uh, really has grown over the past decade plus to uh, many different facets of educational opportunities for our members and people that are not QDMA members to learn about deer management. So that that's our Deer Steward uh, series, and it includes a couple different formats. We actually have online and in-person trainings. Uh, there's multiple levels, uh, and there's also a whole series of Deer Steward modules that are uh, independent of the, the level one and level two Deer Steward series that are topic specific. We teach one topic. So we can chat more about that whole program if you're interested. But yeah. that, that's one arm of uh, what I do. And the other arm is our land certification program, which is very similar to the ideals of Deer Steward. Deer Steward teaches a person and certifies an individual and gives them the information to go and go out and manage. And our land certification program uh, looks at a parcel, a property, um, irrespective of the person that's managing it, and say, looks at that and says, uh, how good is this property? And it comes with a certification, which has value in itself, but a byproduct of that, which I think is the real value of our uh, land certification program, is it offers advice to the person that owns it and gives them a roadmap of direction that we think will lead them to make that property, um, in our mind, you know, a model QDM property. And uh, that also has multiple levels and uh, has some prerequisites. Yeah, you get a site visit by somebody, and uh, there are a lot of other things that go along with it. So those, those are the two main things that I do throughout the year. So on a day-to-day basis, at QDMA, I'd probably wake up and think something about those two programs, um, whether next year's events or, or where we are uh, related to those. But I also, uh, you know, work on a lot of different other projects. We put out a whitetail report every year. Um, I'm one of the main authors on that. That takes up a good chunk of uh, mm-hmm. the year getting ready and writing that and getting that published and working on our convention and uh, a lot of other internal programs. Uh, Matt, Adam here. Um, you know, you, you, yeah. you talked on the steward classes. Let's just, uh, just give us a rundown. That's always been a, I guess, a very interesting thing. And I know you guys always have great crowds. How many of those do you do a year? And just kind of give us a basic rundown of what all that entails. Sure. Uh, well, we, it varies by year what, what and how many we do. But so the idea of deer steward is, for the individual that takes it to be able to, once they're done, there's actually three levels. The first two levels are classes or course, courses you take. Uh, the last level three is, is more of an honor or an award. It's bestowed on somebody that's uh, given back to the resource for a long time. But 
Our goal is for somebody that has gone through level one and level two and completed those, uh, they have to be taken in order to be able to go out and write and implement a deer management plan, you know, to go look at a blank slate of a property or one that's been managed and, and give recommendations, be able to determine, hey, how many deer do I need to shoot this year? And if I kill one, what kind of data should I take off of that deer and then make prescriptions for the future, just like a deer biologist would. So we give the person that goes through level one and level two a, a, a pretty intensive training. And, uh, you know, I, I, I went to school for wildlife and forestry, um, got a couple degrees in that, and I, I still have not learned at that level when I was in school a long time ago. And I don't think there's a school out there that teaches this type of combination of, of education, baseline education, and practical application, the hands-on training that we do that you would come out and be able to make some of those prescriptions and make the, some of those decisions. And, and that is part of the, the foundation of that program. The level one class, we start, I, I say from scratch, but really there's a lot of information in the level one class where we teach the, the foundation of QDM and deer management for even the seasoned veteran. You don't have to be a novice. Uh, you will definitely learn. In fact, we just held a class and had a fair amount of wildlife agency personnel in the class. We all always have federal and state agency folks, consultants, people that do this for a living that come to this class and take the level one and learn something and come out of it saying, wow, I did not know that. Mostly because we infuse the most the latest up-to-date research coming out of colleges and universities every year into our training. We update it every year. So, you know, somebody that's been working in the field for 5, 10, or 20 years, they don't have access to quite that level of information or the or the pace that it's coming out. So the level one class is a classroom-style training. You sit and you watch PowerPoints. We actually jokingly call it death by PowerPoint because <laughs> we show over, over a thousand slides Wow. Uh, and have some of the top minds um, teaching it. I mean, we have obviously some QDMA staff there that I, I think hold their own. Uh, my colleagues, Kip Adams, uh, our founder, Kip is the director of education and outreach. Our founder is at our level one class, Joe Hamilton. Our CEO is even at our level one class, Brian Murphy. Uh, but we also bring in some outside sources of knowledge, such as Dr. Carl Miller, from the mm-hmm. University of Georgia. Carl's the most published whitetail researcher in the world. No one's had as much peer-reviewed literature out as Carl, and uh, he speaks on behalf of UGA and the stuff he's learned over 30-plus years of, of teaching and having a bunch of grad students under him. And then Dr. Craig Harper teaches at Level 1 uh, class, and he is probably the world's foremost habitat specialist that I, I know. I mean, he's done so much work in the, mm-hmm. in the realm of habitat. And um, so that class gives that foundation. We go through our four cornerstones. We talk about whitetail biology and ecology. We talk about herd management, habitat management. Um, we talk about managing hunters. And, and there's about 20 presentations. And you can take level one online if traveling to a location is difficult or at, you know if you don't have the resources for it. The in-person classes... Uh, we hold about one a year. Mm-hmm. We usually try to hold those at some destination uh, right. where you have the added value of getting the education, 
but then we go to some really cool field trip and and uh they are usually associated with a celebrity property but not necessarily we visited jeff foxworthy's property right. Tony stewart from nascar um the lakoskis in iowa bill winky in iowa we were actually just in missouri mm-hmm. uh, with heartland bowhunter so that that's the level one class and then the level two class is about 60 to 70% of it is actually in the field. About 30% of it is classroom style. Um, but our, our main goal in, in level two is to take the foundation of what we taught in level one and get your hands dirty, do the practical application uh-huh. and make you think. I mean, we, we have you go through and set up a property and, and design it and go through that kind of sculpting of a property and think, where do I want to do these things that I learned in level one. So you're measuring fetuses and making prescriptions off of raw harvest data. You're uh, aging jaw bones. Uh, you know, there's so much we do in level two. And the combination between those two, it, the person that goes through both level one and two, uh, I mean, they leave with a, a world of knowledge. And uh, those are always in-person level two classes because of the hands-on aspect. So you know, I, I, I've been teaching and organizing those classes for a long time, and uh, man, it's rare. I think, if not, never have gotten a, a bad review. People come and say, "Wow, that value that we got out of that—that was—that was all there." And, yeah, um, yeah, it was—it was amazing. It's amazing. And then the level three class for those that have gone through level one and level two and are looking—you um, know—we feel like those people have have done a lot. They've given a mm-hmm. lot, and the level three is is more of a status. Um, it's not a class. You apply as a le- all only level two twos can do. Um, and we have, I don't know, there's probably about somewhere between 50 and 100 level three graduates across the country. It's more of an honor. Uh-huh. Um, we put thousands through level one, though. I right. Mean, the multiples of thousands have taken the level one class, to give you an idea. Yeah, so that's dear steward in a, in a nutshell. It's very very encompassing, and if there's any topic that you know uh, someone wants to learn about, you know, to maybe just implement on their property, um, it, to me it sounds like they can get that education there and much more just by taking level one. And if they want to, they like what they hear, and they want to take it a step further. There's level two and three um, at their disposal. And like I said, there's thousands of people who have done it. And you guys, you know, you're not you're not just focused on the Midwest. Um, you guys have done, like you said, places in, in Georgia held level twos there, and I'm um, sure other places across the country. So, and then the other, I, I like it that you know it's available online too. If you can't make that travel, if you can't make that happen in your schedule, or you can't, you know, take a take a week off and devote it just to this, or the the three four days it is. Um, is the online course you can do it kind of at your own pace? Is that right? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. You, okay. Uh, we actually partnered with Clemson University, and you sign up. It's a fraction of the cost to take the online course because we feed you, and it's multiple days, as you mentioned. It's usually right. Friday to a Monday to do a in-person class. You know, and you're talking about five, six meals, uh, plus all the materials, plus all of the the in-house costs of like getting us there and yes. getting, the, getting our speakers there and all of those things. It's about a fifth of the cost to take the online course. Wow. And one of the things that we discovered, uh, and you do take it at your own pace, you have six months to complete the online course once you're registered mm-hmm. and uh, you watch the videos. They're YouTube style. 
and uh, it's basically a filmed version of one of our previous classes. So you're you're part of. You don't get the the personal experience. You're not sitting down and having lunch and dinner with Carl Miller or Joe Hamilton, and you don't have that whole weekend to kind of bond. Mm-hmm. Um, so the value in the in-person class really is there. But, you know, if I, I understand that. I mean, I have a young family for a lot of people that that cost or that time is not possible. So we made it online, and, man, we have a lot of people taking it online, and the value is there. And you just wait for a level two, I guess, to come to your neck of the woods. We're, we just did our one level one for 2017 so that's that's done mm-hmm. um, but we have level twos coming up in Arkansas next month uh, awesome. and one in Michigan in September and I mentioned earlier our, our deer steward modules you don't have to take a deer steward one or two to be able to go to a module anybody can go to those mm-hmm. and we started offering those uh, in 2015 because we had I mean you can imagine we we teach these deer steward classes and the agenda, they're pretty chock full. I mean, we're going through 20 presentations in a couple of days. And we've, we've had one of the probably few comments or criticisms we had gotten was somebody would say, hey, you know, you guys talked about this, mm-hmm. X or Y, and I only got an hour of it. Man, I would really love to hear more about that one thing. So we said, let's offer it. So the modules, we take basically one topic, and instead of instead of only spending an hour on it, we devote a whole weekend or basically wow. uh, two and a half or one and a half days. Mm-hmm. So we started offering those in 2015 and we're doing three of those this year in 17. Uh, we have one coming up in June in South Carolina on predator management. Okay. And uh, we always bring in a, a premier speaker that basically leads that class. So Clint Carey, um, at a oh, yeah. is going to be teaching uh, our predator management class, and I'll, I'll be there as well. And that's at a, outside of Columbia, and uh, people will be out there setting traps, and uh, it's just an amazing experience. I've actually taught that class with him in the past, but he he leads basically the whole the whole thing. And uh, there's no certification; it's just a training, right? So Hands-on application. We're doing yeah. hands-on. It, it's awesome. Uh, the Second module we're doing is with Dr. Harper. Uh, that's in North Carolina, and that's all about habitat, TSI, forest management, managing old fields. Uh, basically, you just get Craig for uh, you know almost two days of time just talking about nothing but habitat, and most of it's in the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, do, doing those things. And then third, uh, the third one, and that, that habitat management came about because you get Craig for like a morning. Uh, Craig and myself teach forestry and, and other habitat management. He does food pots and old fields and mm-hmm. prescribed burning at our deer steward class, but you get him for a whole weekend and he's, he's just amazing. Um, and the third module, Kip Adams and myself are doing a, uh, survey techniques, uh, mm-hmm. module in September in Pennsylvania, right there on his farm. Okay. So we'll be going through trail camera surveys telecount surveys, observation surveys, uh, and all the all the math that goes with all those things, spotlight surveys, all the ways that you can yep. do a uh, population survey of your, of your deer herd year-round. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. the season. There's, there's different times that each one would be applied, and we're going through all those. So those modules are all available, and they're cheaper than taking the deer steward class, obviously, because they're shorter time. Sure. Um, 
but and you don't have to have any prerequisites. You just come to it and, and you learn. How they kind That's of broken awesome. up into very specific topics. So again, if, if someone wants to know just about herd management or just about predators, you go and, 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 and let's say you've already taken a Deer Steward 1 course. And like you said, that one gentleman, he's like, I want to know more about that. I, and that was really interesting to me, or I see that being applied to my property. You can go to this one and get that information, the hands-on, the in-depth training, um, and walk away that much more knowledgeable on what it is you, you're desiring for your property. That's awesome. Exactly, exactly. Because QD, I mean, the educational aspect, the department I work in um, at QDMA, Education and Outreach, I mean, we we try to put out as much information as possible. That's really what we're based on. Our, mm-hmm. our foundation is education because, you know, there's millions of deer hunters out there. Um, there's millions of deer, and certainly in a lot of places, it's too many deer. We're not, you know, as a conservation organization, we're not trying to protect deer or or, right. or anything related to that or, or build up deer populations. We're trying to arm deer hunters, uh, you know, how to have better hunting, how mm-hmm. to have more fun doing it, how to make their experiences more positive. So education is what we do. And we have, you know, hundreds of opportunities online and videos and uh, we do all kinds of stuff, you know, books, posters, uh, DVDs, programs that you can, you know, implement with a small group of people. Um, but the Deer Steward class is for that individual just wants that training and more than just an article, you know, more than right. just something they read online. They want to, they want to do it. Uh, it. It's available. So that is what I do. Uh, you know, my, my background, uh, was, consulting before I worked for QDMA and so I had a lot of experience working and and with landowners Mm -hmm. Um, so it it fit really well once I came to the organization kind of offer that educational aspect yeah just out of curiosity Matt what is and just give our listeners a background on your education where did you go to school and what did you study I uh so I, I grew up in the Northeast, and I live and work out of my home in New York State, um, and grew up, you know, like many uh, QDMA employees, you know, as a deer hunter. It's kind of what I do. It's who I am. Uh, I, you know, I live and breathe deer hunting. So I grew up very interested in wildlife and mostly deer and wanted to go to school for it. So I looked around the Northeast, you know, out of the scope of what I knew as a as a you know teenager and ended up going to school in the Northeast at the University of Massachusetts. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's a handful of wildlife schools up here, not necessarily big in the deer side of things, but uh, UMass had a good wildlife program in general, mm-hmm. and I uh, enjoyed my experience there. And actually came home and worked for as a seasonal technician for our, the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. Yep. That's our where our you know game management unit is, and did like uh, some non-game work stuff with peregrine falcons. I actually got mm-hmm. to work in some deer check stations as a tech and some other things, and decided to go back to school. I was only out for a little bit of time. I realized I wanted to pursue the wildlife thing even more, and uh, got my master's degree at the University of New Hampshire. Uh, New Hampshire at the time had a very strong uh, game program. There's a uh, and they don't have it anymore, but there was a uh, research facility that housed moose, moose and deer and turkeys and coyotes oh. and all kinds of other stuff. That that 
uh, facilities closed right now, but um, went there because there was a good program looking at deer management in northern New England, and uh, I worked on a project looking as for as a master's student. I actually ran that research facility, so it was pretty neat experience mm-hmm. to get up every day and work with deer. And there was a lot of different research done there. They did. Uh, it was known for the metabolic studies that were done there. Okay. The deer were hand raised, so they were you know, almost like livestock. Where and uh, there was a, a way to measure their respiratory rate. Um, pretty neat stuff to look at how northern deer like work through their way in the winters up there. But uh, my project had to do with supplemental feeding of deer in the northeast. It's a pretty um, common practice. People put out stuff for deer to try to help, help quote unquote, help them through the winter. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of the state agencies really uh, discourage that because there's a lot of negativity with putting out grain or things like that to help help deer through the winter. And uh, so my project as a master's student was to determine, come up with a an inexpensive and easy way for the state agency to figure out where that was occurring in the in the state um it wasn't illegal it wasn't to go out and believe it or not to write tickets or anything like that right. want to have a better idea of what communities were offering it still not illegal even though they discouraged people to do it but mm-hmm. um so that was my project and i got to work with deer hands-on and go out in the field and uh do stuff out in the in the woods as well so it was neat and then after i finished school i started working for a consulting company, a forestry and wildlife consulting company. I was hired as uh, the wildlife biologist for uh, uh, this, this crew. There was mostly forestry work happening there out of that company. So I was writing, you know, in the beginning, in my tenure there, I was writing prescriptions for wildlife. But uh, I had gotten a minor in forestry and had done some work as a master's student, some classes as a mm-hmm. uh, in forestry and uh while i was there uh i was there long enough that i started picking up some of the uh tips and other things that our consult the other consultants were doing and uh really got interested in it and then started picking up some of the slack when we got really busy in marking timber and writing forestry prescriptions and long story short i ended up getting uh, licensed as a forester and doing a lot of forestry work while I was there. <laughs> right. You know, you know, marking millions of board feet of timber and working with loggers and, and such. So it was, it was a really awesome experience for me because I grew up as a deer hunter. Uh, I understood deer biology from school and, you know, what I had seen as a deer hunter and, uh, the habitat management world really started to come full circle and come into focus for me as a forester mostly because i worked for a company that had been in existence long enough that when i was going out to jobs that may have been the second or third or fifth treatment on a property and you're talking about like you know 30 or 40 or 50 years down the line Mm -hmm. and being able to see what the landscape looked like when my predecessor or, you know, my boss had marked it in 1980 and said, okay, this is what they did. I know what kind of cut was put here and this is what it looks now. And then, you know, you could fast forward where I would mark a stand and I'd watch it get cut and I'd see it that year 
and two years later and see what kind of response would happen. Yes. It was like, as a deer hunter, being able to hit a rewind and fast forward button in my mind every time, uh, really neat experience to be able to, 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 to get that kind of information because I would be able to walk into a property as a consultant and listen to the landowner and hear what kind of goals they wanted to achieve and say, okay, well, I know what we need to do. If we treat this property in this way, X, Y, or Z, you will get the result you're looking for. And, and that's right. one of the keys to your listeners mm-hmm. is to work with a forester or consultant um, that's based on a good recommendation. Don't be afraid to ask to see some of their work, but to have somebody that is local. Mm-hmm. You want somebody to be able to read the landscape, you know, to, to be able to come into a situation and say, all right, you know, I've worked with this forest type. I, I know how it works. And uh, it's one of the best, best things that I gained. And then I jumped into the QDMA world. Um, believe it or not, I started volunteering at, at, when I was in grad school. I joined, you know, it was this QDMA group I had heard about. But, where, you know, where has this group been my whole life? So yeah. I joined, started a local branch. And uh, was the vice president of, I think it was the first branch in New England, because mm-hmm. I was still in New Hampshire at the time, and volunteered for several years until there was a job opening. And uh, I applied and got it and was working in a different department in the beginning. I, I was a regional director at first. Okay, yeah. Uh, working with volunteers and then soon moved into education outreach, and I've been there ever since. So that's kind of a whirlwind of... My background. Yeah, that that's pretty, um, pretty amazing. A lot of stuff, and I, I, the th- one thing that really stuck out to me is when you really started diving into the management and I guess habitat with the forestry and and timber removal. On and I say that because in the past several episodes, Matt and I have talked about an upcoming um, timber management. I guess a timber harvest on our on our home base and uh, like a four hundred acre harvest, and we really worked and went and seen this guy's work and kind of have just talked about how the closed canopy forest has almost become a basically there's really not much benefit for the wildlife and we're trying to open that canopy up and and we're just trying to let people know the the change that's going to come and how how much better the habitat will be because of that but i think a lot of people and you may back me up on this but in our experience and the clients we deal with a lot of people are almost scared to really do anything with the timber. They don't really have enough trust with somebody else coming in with the saw and they don't really trust themselves. So they kind of just let it be. But could you give us a little bit of the, I guess the knowledge you gained habitat wise and wildlife, I guess, management wise that you saw or learned during that time of watching marking timber and then watching trees fall and be removed. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's my valley with, if I really talk about uh it it's interesting you know as a forestry and wildlife consultant before for kdma um worked with lots of different landowners sometimes they were towns sometimes mm-hmm. they were individuals that owned it or family trusts or or what have you and i think you find i mean you guys might in your work you have a pretty niche person that you're talking to they're interested in game management but you can you can not touch a, a forest and it's still providing something to some kind of animal because every animal out there requires a different types of 
composition and species of the habitat, right? Sure. So you could have a old growth forest and it's providing something out there like that. But in the world of game management, deer, turkeys, those kind of things, you, you're, you really need to treat your woods. You need to cut them. You need to open it up because as the forest, uh, goes down through the periods of succession and gets older and more mature and the canopy does close as Adam just mentioned and you start seeing that shade component increase, the the food value and the cover value starts to decrease and you're starting to put yourself in a position where it's not as desirable and cannot for, for those animals and cannot hold the same number of animals as you would if it was more open. So, um, and one of the things that we were chatting about a little earlier was the fear factor of touching that. And, and I get it because with a lot of topics, when you talk about quote unquote habitat management for deer or turkeys or other animals that are uh, game species, the other things that are out there, food plots in particular, it's not as fearful because Correct. if you make a mistake, all you got to do is fix it the next year or later the same year. The timeline that involved is just so short. It's within, great point. you know, the human span. It just feels like it's so much more accessible. And you cut a bunch of trees down, you got to wait 50 to 100 years to get that, that or longer, mm-hmm. get that same condition back. And that's a lifetime, you know, for, for, uh, for us, we look at that and say, wow, that impact is way more permanent. And you need to, you need to step back from that for a couple reasons. Uh, uh, you know, one, that permanence is a, is a matter of perspective. You know, in right. the big picture of things, uh, you know, nobody likes change. I hate change more than anybody, but mm-hmm. though, I don't mind change in the forest because I know that the benefits, and I think that came from my experience as a forester, watching the response. Mm-hmm. feeling like the Pied Piper. I mean, it's just amazing to go in there and say, I will do X, Y, and Z and watch the forest and, and the understory respond and watch the wildlife respond. You know, it's like I did that. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the person that's fearful, I get it. I, I, I not only get it, I, I think it's a good thing to be uh, fearful uh, because you can you know, do something in a negative way and really change things. And then it not only doesn't look good, but you could be degrading the forest or not making the condition that you, you want, or, or at least have the result be a short term thing. You can cut the forest in a way where you get this flush of understory. And then after six, seven years, it gets to what we call stem exclusion, where that forest like shades out. And then all of a sudden that, that, uh, your benefits start going down and decreases because it's now shaded and then you don't have the, the overstory to work with. So there's, there's, there's some things we can talk about. I'm sure we'll get into some of that. So I get the fearfulness. It's a good thing to have it. And that's why you should work with a professional, uh, manager, somebody that's trained and certified. Um, like I'm a certified wildlife biologist and I'm a licensed forester and, mm-hmm. There are, there are organizations out there that will provide certification or like through forestry, you can do it through the Society of American Foresters or through uh, Association of Consulting Foresters or somebody that can offer that advice uh, where it's 
you know that they have that integrity, that training in the background. Um, and, and one of the good things there is the person that is coming in has some credibility behind it, but it always good. It's always good to go with the, the recommendation uh, of somebody in that, in that perspective. Right. I think you kind of touched on it right there. One of the other questions is, okay, so I'm a little fearful of getting in a logger and sometimes, unfortunately, loggers may have a negative connotation and, and, you know, being dirty or, or kind of robbing the landowner some and not, not doing equal things, doing some shady business. In your experience, what are some ways to basically confront that on the front end and basically interview process, look at their work, talk to landowners? What, what can a landowner do to make sure that they're getting quality trustworthy loggers on their property? That's a good question. You know, there's just like with hunters, you know, there's a, could be some negative connotation with hunters, people mm-hmm. that trespass or uh, people that poach or wouldn't even put them in the same, uh, you know, bucket as hunters. Right. Or just hunters that leave trash out in the woods or et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of good loggers out there. Sure. And I have some close friends that are loggers. But there's that stigma out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the best things you can do is work with a consulting company or, uh, you know, an individual that works with multiple subcontractors. Yeah. I'm always wary of working with an uh, organization that has logging and the person marking in it in the same umbrella, mm-hmm. um, partly because that's a little tricky. I mean, it, it does, might not seem that like that from the outside, but obviously the person that is marking the timber is also financially benefiting it if, if sure. they're also the one that's cutting it. Having a representation, that middle ground, I know I've heard that term a lot where, you know, I'm just going to cut out the middleman and go with a logger. Mm-hmm. you got to be cautious there because as a forester, you know, I'm trained in silviculture. Silviculture is a science-based yep. There's an art and a science to silviculture. Silviculture is the science of basically making sunlight come down on the ground and in a predictable way making certain trees grow there. Um, But there's an art to it, as I mentioned before, being able to read the landscape. Loggers probably have the art side of it, but probably not the science side of it. They, you know, they they may not be able to see that long term that long term picture as well as a forester can. And there's not many people out there that can look that far down the line and understand that. So. You know, mm-hmm. Working with that, I hate to say it, but that middleman, you get more bang for your buck. I mean, in sure. a lot of ways, foresters, although there's a cost to use them, uh, they they will make you legal. You mm-hmm. know, in a lot of states, uh, you know, I mentioned before, I'm licensed as a forester. Um, I think it's 15 states in the U.S. You have to be licensed or registered in that state to practice forestry. Not right. every state. The state I live in right now in New York is not, but um, I'm licensed in the state of New Hampshire, and New Hampshire requires you, you can't practice forestry unless you're licensed under the board of yeah. licensure for forest management in that state. So, uh, one, there's that side of it. But also, you know, every state has different wetland regulations or best management practices, so they'll make sure you're not, you know, um, going through and making a mess of something and being illegal in the operation itself. And to be honest with you, foresters will make the landowner more money mm-hmm. just because of the economy of scale, how much volume they deal with. 
like the company I worked for before QDMA, we had many jobs going on at the same, same time. time. And at any point, there'd be six to ten operations happening mm-hmm. with different crews on each one. So we're pumping more wood to the mill than somebody that's just a logger that might do six jobs a year. And that'd uh-huh. be a lot. Right. You know, we would have dozens of jobs going and you get better prices when you're supplying those Quality. mills with more more uh, volume. Mm-hmm. So the price per unit would just be a little bit higher based on the operation. And if that person's working under um, one of the sustainable forestry um, clauses, they're also getting higher prices from that too. So you know, there's, a, there's a lot of benefits of working with that one person. So the, the, the landowner that is fearful and doesn't know where to I would say find a forester. Find somebody that's trained, they're professional, and like I mentioned earlier, don't be afraid to say, can I see some of your work? Mm-hmm. It's a local person, as I mentioned earlier, they should say, yeah, we got a job going on X, you know, over here, or might take you on a tour of a couple places that had just been cut or were cut a year ago. I, they should be proud of their work, and they, they likely are, and show you, kind of give you a picture of what it would look like. Um, then the the tricky part is expressing to them what you want to accomplish. And that is probably the most uh, complicated thing that comes up, and it's the most common question I get at QDMA, is something goes along like this. I'm a deer hunter. I want to, I, I, I'm ready. I want to cut my trees. But every, every forester I talk to, they don't, they don't understand the deer side of it. They are all about making money and money's important to me, but they don't quite see, you know, the, the QDM side or the deer management side. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and that's a super common question. And my recommendation is find a forester that's a deer hunter because they'll get it. Somebody that, that, you know, spend their free time out, you know, do pursuing the same thing. And QDMA has a lot of members that are professional foresters or biologists. Um, so that training is pretty, pretty key, but also finding somebody that will get the deer side of things. So, you know, there's, there's a couple different avenues of treating a forest. Um, there's two main umbrella approaches of uh, forest management or silviculture, and uh, I'm a fan of of, uh, of both. Um, the they fall under the even aged management or uneven age management. Mm-hmm. Um, the even age management is the system where you're trying to regenerate for regenerate a forest at one age class, and uneven age management is where you have multiple age classes going on out there. And they both they both offer benefits to to the deer hunter. Um, but they all involve cutting trees, and uh, got to get past that. I know, uh, you know, for many landowners that live in the Whitetails Range, you know, a significant proportion of their acreage is going to be forested. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it in those terms, you know, if you're treating your property and you're only touching one percent of it, or three percent of it, or even ten percent of it in Things like food plots and other other things, you're you're missing out on the opportunity to treat the whole thing and the ability to get food and cover everywhere. Bingo. Um, you know, we can go through some numbers there of what that all adds up to. But why not why not work on the whole property? Mm-hmm. Don't, I'd know, love to hear those numbers. Short. 
I'd love to hear those numbers if, if you were uh, willing to share them. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, for most people, they're looking at, in their mind, they say food plot, right? Food plots can put a lot of food on the ground, um, depending on, you know, in a highly concentrated way. Yeah. Yeah, in a highly concentrated way. I mean, you can get two to 8,000 pounds of food uh, per acre in a food plot if you're managing it correctly and you plant it at the right time and you amend your soil correctly and it's it's a lot of food but you know say and depending on what variety of of forage you put in there and uh say you only have three percent of your property so out of a hundred acre parcel you have three acres at you know five thousand pounds of food per acre so you got fifteen thousand pounds of food per acre in those three food plots but then you have 97% of your property that's left. Mm-hmm. If it's all forested, uh, you're, you have the ability to, to do something with that. If it's forested and it's closed canopy, you know, you're only getting 25 to 100 pounds of food per acre per year in that if, it, if you're not treating it. Right. But if you're managing it and thinning it or thinning it and burning it, you can get up to 15 half. 100 pounds of food per acre per year. You know, it averages somewhere between five and 500 and 1,500. But if 97 acres, you had, let's say, on average, 1,000 in the middle, between 500 and 1,500, you had 1,000 pounds of food per acre on 97 acres. Just think of the volume of food and cover that you're putting out there on those other 97 acres. Right. Um Incredible. And for many landowners, they're not treating it. So they, they have these three concentrated food sources or, you know, three acres of concentrated food sources that has a lot of food in those, those areas, but you're just, the potential of that property is just so much greater. And then there's a whole category of managing for early succession, um, which rivals food plots in terms of volume. I mean, you can get up to almost 4,000 pounds of food per acre and you can convert your forest if you don't have, uh, you know, the available place to do that. Like if you, if you do have fields that you can let go mm-hmm. or you have forest that you want to cut and stump, you know, you can, you can really buffer all that other stuff with your early successional management, which a lot of people do not do again yes. because of, either the fear factor of letting the field go or the fear factor of cutting something and letting it go. You know, there's, there's all kinds of things. That, but I, I think in terms what, of numbers, that's just what most landowners are missing out on. Those numbers are incredible. I, I, I'm I, laughing because I wrote an article yesterday on the exact same thing, um, stating basically the, the same thing. So I'm, I'm glad that you were able to kind of put that in, in words um, for, for our listeners to hear. Um, and, and sum that up. That's awesome. Oh, you're welcome. You're I think, welcome. you know, and you touched on it a little bit, but I think a lot of times for for us and our experience and our neighbors and people we know, it's like if it's an open area, you talked about old field and the benefits of old field, but it's, it's sometimes amusing because it's, okay, I have this open field. Now I want to plant a food plot. Ooh, and then they start pr- pricing food plot seed, and it just never – it gets really expensive really quick. And these are ways that I think people oh, yeah. overlook is if you manage correctly, it's a very inexpensive way, but get the same benefits. Without Absolutely. without risk, 
Um, on average, what what are you spending on a food plot? Like three three hundred fifty bucks if you do it right, and you're mm-hmm. mending it, and you're and you're spraying at the time, you know, three hundred fifty bucks per acre, or or in that in that kind of average when you have the seed and every all the things invested, your gas, you know, yeah, everything uh, added up, and an old field, uh, something that is in a good composition of it does have grasses in it. You know, there's a, there's about five years ago, a little bit more than that, there was this big push that it's kind of dying out now to plant, plant native warm season grasses. And, uh, you know, deer just don't eat grass. It provides good cover, but they're not grass eaters. They, they mm-hmm. eat forbs, which is the broad leaved, non woody things and shrubs and, and other things, things that have leaves on them. Um, and that, that, that kind of, wave of popularity starting to die down a lot but um in those situations where you're letting go uh uh you know let's say you have a pasture that's got a bunch of cool season grasses in it if you get rid of that that what craig calls a carpet craig harper you know get rid of that that layer of thatch that's preventing all those seeds from coming up out of the ground and just let it go just spray it once to see what happens um and there are other techniques. You can, you know, obviously burning and disking, and depending on the seasonality of when you do those things, it, it changes the response. But if you just let it go and let succession take place, you get your annuals coming in, and you do get some grasses coming in, but all, all of these broad, really highly valuable things that just don't show up on the landscape all that often until you see disturbance. You know, wildlife love that stuff. Oh, yeah. Especially game animals, because... In the history of our country, there was a lot of disturbance happening. You know, mm-hmm. they, they were clearing stuff or as we were settling the country and game populations were at an all time high when all these things were happening. There were fires periodically that didn't get put out and uh, human intervention was out there trying to, to farm the land and cut all this lumber and just basically live life. And the uh, game responded to it. And throughout the century, you know, we've, We've slowed our our uh, disturbance regime, you know, and, and forests are getting older, and they're closing out the canopies, and we're just in a in a culture now that we're, you don't do that much. You got to disturb the the ground. You got to cut things. You got to burn it. You got to you got to pull up the soil and make it respond, and animals will respond to it. Um, Music to our ears. You know, just, <laughs> Yeah. One thing. You know, it's funny. I I don't like changing a lot of things in my life, but when I go onto a property, I'm like, for everything I look at, I'm like, let's start cutting, let's start doing. <laughs> yeah. I know that the positive aspects of that, and, and that's the thing that the the layman, you just don't know. You know, you get conditioned to what is there is yes. what we have. Yes. But the situation is just so right for the individual to make things better. When I walk on a property, all I see is potential and I am a person that does not like change. But when I walk onto a parcel and somebody wants to make things better for themselves mm-hmm. and they might be a little fearful of cutting or doing anything to it, they just get conditioned to the condition I see here is what I have. Yes. But that's not the truth. The truth is you need to disturb the ground. You need to make the canopy open. You need to do stuff. Correct. And the more disturbance there is, the more value that wildlife, particularly deer, will get out of it. 
Agreed 100%. Yeah, yeah, this is stuff that we love to talk about. But I'm going to back up. One thing you talked about how native grasses have kind of died down, and there was this big push. But I think we're all aware of the big push, and, and it seems like a very trendy thing in the habitat world is hinge cutting. And would you please just talk a little bit about some of the benefits, the negatives, all the pros and cons that regard hinge cutting? Yeah, absolutely. And, and everything comes with uh, benefits and drawbacks, right? So the you can still go out and seed native warm season grasses, just the recommendation for the person interested in deer and wildlife is to go light on the seeding mm-hmm. and let all those other great things come up with it. So yes. yep. with hinge cutting, there's also things that you can do with hinge cutting. I'm, I'm a fan of hinge cutting in the right place and time. Um, hinge cutting is the act of t- taking your saw, cutting a tree down to the point where you're not severing the cambium layer under the, the bark completely. So you half cut the tree or three quarters cut and you just tip it over and the tree stays connected to the root base. And the idea there is you're leaving the structure, that immediate sense of structure where the treetop is down uh, within reach of the deer and providing some kind of uh, offering for them to bed under and feed on the buds. And in the north, uh, for your listeners that are doing it, it's a, it is generally a good practice to do your hinge cutting towards the end of, end of winter when deer food sources are almost at a all time low. Right. Um, it gives them, you know, reach, they can reach the tops of those trees now and they stay alive in that spring, they'll re-sprout. So mm-hmm. the, the benefit of that staying connected to the root base is that the top will stay alive. It's gonna, it's gonna green up. It's gonna, um, continue to sprout. And you'll get several years of growth out of that tree, although it won't be in the canopy anymore. So you get sunlight coming down, you get deer have access to food and visual structure as well. Just like, you know, for anybody that's a a fisherman, you know, fish-like structure, Mm -hmm. deer will find little patches like that. The the places that I like to hinge cut are on field edges for the most part um, because trees tend to be pretty limmy on field edges. They're reaching out. they're, They're sprouting. You know, as they grow, they're they're putting their green vegetation outward, not necessarily up, mm-hmm. but they try to reach into the field. And from a timber value standpoint, those trees tend to be on field edges, not very valuable because of it, because mm-hmm. of all that limminess. And uh, you know, you're you're not taking away anything from the ability to produce an income from the forest. Um, and also, a lot of people do know that you know. In those fields where, let's say, it is a food plot or it's some kind of um, cultivated field that a farmer has or something like that, those tend to be destination food sources, mostly because in in most situations, the forests are closed canopy situations where the, the trees are reaching for the sun. They, they try to grow straight and tall to get up to the sunlight, and that's where your best timber value is. And the food value in the forest isn't great. So mm-hmm. the deer end up, their destination to go eat in the evening and in the mornings where you'll find them are those fields. So if you do a field edge, you can really enhance uh, the staging ability of deer and really your ability to kill a deer on a field edge. If you go from what we call a hard edge, which is a short cultivated field right to the edge of a mature forest, yeah. Um, creates like a right angle. Yep. 
a soft edge is where you, you basically feather that and it gradually goes from cultivated field to like brushy environment to small trees to finally mature trees. And you can hinge with that in mind where you, let's say you hinge every tree within the first 10 to 15 yards of the field and the next 10 to 15 yards, you do 50% of them or you mm-hmm. could even, you know, bring it back even further in the woods. So you kind of create that soft edge and the hindering ability, you can direct deer movement and make them enter if you, cause once the hinges are cut, um, you can create some spots where I want the deer to enter the field right here, you know, and, and I think that aspect of hinge cutting is its highest value, um, is, uh, dictating where deer go. Right. Um, and where they enter a field or how they travel across a property. I've seen people hinge in the middle of a forest to basically steer deer near, near a tree stand or things like that. Mm-hmm. So those, those are the, the benefits. Uh, the drawbacks, I think some folks are taking safety, um, a little bit too far and they're really putting themselves at risk when they're hinge cutting and cutting trees that are much too large. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole, idea of hinging a tree uh throws everything out of the window in terms of safety in terms of working with a chainsaw right there's something called directional felling where you can control the tree to go down in a certain way uh by doing a cut on the front and uh doing a back cut and basically directing the the tree to go in a certain direction um hinge cutting uh is bad in that sense where you, the tree can really split in any way and go down in any way. So one of the things that uh, we recommend is if you're going to do hinge cutting, try to do it on smaller trees where you can physically control the tree to go in a certain direction mm-hmm. um, with your hand or with a tool. If the tree is too big where you feel like that thing's just too big, you should just directionally fell the tree because the only value you get out of hinging it is if it's if it stays connected is the tree staying alive on the top you can still get the same structural value and deer steering and movement value if you just leave the top if you cut it down all the way and leave it there the deer are still going to to go around it and do the things that you would want in the other sense Mm -hmm. um so safety is one of those things obviously as a as somebody that's trained in forestry I cringe when I watch videos or see people cutting down, you know, commercially viable trees that might be worth something. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and doing that to it, whereas you could have just felled the tree, pulled it out of the woods, uh, gotten the sunlight, gotten the response of understory growth, mm-hmm. which is what the deer really want anyway. You know, you get all those forbs and young shrubs and trees coming in. Um, and then you could pull that tree out of there and made 300 bucks on it. Um, right. But I, you know, I understand for landowners that have 20 acres or 15 acres, they're likely never going to have a commercial sale on their property, right? You know, that's that's a pretty average land holding. Mm -hmm. They just don't have that many trees. So why not hinge them? And I get that. Right. Um, The safety thing comes, comes down. Um, so those are, those are things that are certainly, uh, come up. QDMA has a, a great article on our website about, you know, some signs that you may be hinge cutting too much. And yes, uh, I'd recommend that. anybody that yep. is interested to check it out. It's, you know, it talks a little bit deeper than that about species selection and 
and others, but um, mm-hmm. it has its place just like anything. Right. You just have to uh, manage and use appropriately. Know, know the best place to do it. Right. Yeah, right. exactly. Now, can you talk about, you, you mentioned earlier, even-aged and uneven-aged regeneration of forest, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, it might be another terminology that people may be familiar with, is select cutting and clear cutting. Can you talk about those two different cuts and the benefits that they have to wildlife in a forest? Absolutely. That's that's my uh, my my soapbox. I'll get on and talk about both of those things. So, even age management is the the scheme of silviculture where you're trying to uh, either working in or you're trying to regenerate at a stand level. You know, you're t- looking. 30,000 foot view, you're looking down, mm-hmm. all the trees are about the same age class or you want them to be all the same age class. Um, there's a lot of benefit to that. Many folks might be hearing that and saying, okay, I'm thinking about like plantation style management where they're all the same age. Right. That is even age management in a sense. But, you know, I live in the Northeast and I'm in uh, the mixed northern hardwoods forest up here. You know, we have cherry, white pine, oaks, um, ash, all kinds of stuff. And I could walk into a situation outside my my office door here that is not a plantation, but it's still an even age forest because all the trees grew up at the same time because they, just like we were talking about succession earlier, there was disturbance or it was a field that was let go and everything came back. And mm-hmm. I've been, I can't tell you how many times I've been with a landowner standing in the woods and leaning up against a tree and the tree might be... 24 inches in diameter and 10 feet away there's another tree that's 12 inches in diameter and they think that they're different ages and all you need to do is look up at the canopy and you can see they're actually at the same level in the canopy Um, one tree is might be a different species could be the same species it just one tree grew a little better had better genetics had a little bit better microclimate on the soil it grew on one did better genetically it may have been better Um, Mm -hmm. trees have genetics too and that is still an even-age forest. Right. So under the even-aged silvicultural technique, there are different ways to regenerate um, or, or go, go in that direction. A lot of people know clear cuts. Uh, that is the most common. You go in, you cut everything, you walk away, and you come back X number of years later, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that's, that's your clear-cut system. There are actually other two or three other um, kind of steps in the in the even age system. If you think about a clear cut, and everybody knows what that is, there's also something called a seed tree cut and a shelter wood cut. Um, those they're both they're all systems. So the shelter wood system is the sense where you go in and you cut 50 to 60 percent of the tree. It's the same idea as a clear cut, but instead of taking all of them. You take 50 to 60% of them and you leave about 40% of them mm-hmm. um, or, or so. And the seed tree cut is the same idea, but instead of doing it in one step, you do it in two or three. Um, in all of those systems, at some point, you would still remove all the overstory. So, for example, um, in the shelterwood system, if I go in step one and I take 50 to 60% of the trees away, once the forest 
new forest is created and I see a good establishment of seedlings coming in, I would go in and remove the overstory, the, the residual trees I left the first time. Right, that additional 40-50%. Yeah, exactly. You just come in, go and take them. And mm-hmm. you, you're basically leaving in both of those two other ones, the seed tree, I mean, it's in the name, seed right. tree, and the shelterwood system, it, it's relying mostly on natural regeneration. You're leaving some some trees in there to, to seed in the ground, to, to throw seed. Um, you can still go in there and artificially regenerate it, mm-hmm. which happens a lot more in the south. You know, you go in and you plant. If you're not getting the response, you go and you monitor it and say, you know what, we're not getting what we're expecting. Um, but the, the idea there is the even age mo- model, all those clear cuts, shelter wood, seed trees, is, is working with an intense and high amount of sunlight because obviously there's all that sun coming in and every tree out there has a different on the continuum of tolerance to sunlight. Some are sun loving. They're very shade intolerant and some trees are very shade tolerant. They want to grow in shade. They don't do well in sun. So that really, I mean, the, the, the volume and intensity of sunlight are what, foresters use Mm -hmm. they say uh, to a degree obviously i'm trying to also work with natural seed sources and know that if i'm out there and the the um, loggers are churning up the soil to drive their equipment around and it was a good seed year for whatever you know whatever tree is there i know that that's just like seeding in a food plot i know that's going to help me you know those are all as their tires are churning up the, the leaf layer in the soil and they're getting some of those uh, Samaras or acorns or pine seeds, you know, they're, they're working it into the soil. That definitely helps. But for the most part, you're working with sun. So I know if I do something in the even age system, uh, I am work, I want the composition to be a lot of sun loving species, something that likes a lot of sun. So in all of those, what you get for deer is a, for the first five years, I mean, everybody knows what a clear cut is. We're going to go back to that. You get huge benefits in cover, right? Because mm-hmm. a clear cut, think about three years after a clear cut's been put in. Does anybody want to walk through the middle of that? Most people don't because it's nothing but, you know, six to eight foot high brambles and saplings and shrubs and, you know, a lot of forbs. Like, uh, you get, you know, all of those, uh, um, poke weeds and all that stuff. I mean, it's hard to walk through it. Certainly. But you can definitely imagine if you put on your, uh, you know, Carhartt overalls and put on a helmet and started busting through that, you're going to start jumping deer, right? I mean, so, that's, people yeah. know that. Um, there's all that forage value. There's all that, as I mentioned, all those species that are growing deer are going to browse on that. You get a lot of soft mass because of it. Um, but there's a clock ticking. At about the sixth or seventh year, and this is proven through, you know, research, it, most climates you're reaching stem exclusion, and that's when those, those saplings that grew up in the first couple of years are starting to get tall enough, they're starting to shade out the understory, you're gonna lose those brambles, you're gonna lose those forbs, and the value to deer goes down. So, an even age system, is going to see an intense wildlife response for about five to seven years. And they'll still use it. It's not like they're not going to go into those areas, but it drops down precipitously afterwards. Mm-hmm. An uneven age model, 
where you have uh, multiple age classes, um, where there's always going to be some sustainable harvest happening, you might have three, four, five age classes out there, is under the, the, the guise where you go out and you selectively choose uh, one tree, pockets of trees, or even small groups of trees. Um, and I'll talk more about that in a second. The, there's something in between those two called two-age management, between uneven and even-age management. And if you think of a shelterwood or seed tree cut, where you're going in and cutting a bunch of trees, um, and instead of doing the final harvest, where you would go in and finally take those residual trees off, you retain them for 40-plus years. And most two-age management models in terms of deer uh, management, you're, you're, re- you're retaining your, your acorn producers. Right. So can you imagine a situation where you have sporadic, large crowned, uh, oak trees, uh, that are dropping acorns inside basically, if I can use the word clear cut, it's not a clear cut, but you have that cover that I'm talking about in an even age model, but you have, you know, uh, mass producers dropping in it. That's obviously an ideal situation mm-hmm. and you're kind of getting the benefit of an even age system but you're also retaining some of those things um the uneven age model uh and you mentioned matt the term select cut and i said you know i'll get on my soapbox for a second uh <laughs> that term is used very loosely in the forestry world particularly outside of like trained folks because when i hear that there's just so many nuances to, to forest management that the the term unfortunately gets used when people are talking about something that is a diameter limit harvest mm-hmm. where a diameter limit harvest is I go in, not me, but a person would go in and say, okay, uh, this is unfortunately where that bad logger thing comes up is some widow or some, you know, person would get a letter saying, hey, you know, we're cutting in the area. Are you interested? And they say, yeah, you know, I could use the money. And they go in and say, yeah, I looked around. You know, you're you're ready for harvest. We'll go in and take everything over 16, 16 inches or over. And sounds good to me. I'm going to leave some of these, you know, younger, quote, unquote, younger trees, which end up being smaller diameter trees mm-hmm. that are the same age as uh, the the ones that are larger. And what you're left with, in extreme situations, obviously you're going to get that flush of cover and food that I was talking about earlier that you would get in even age management. Uh, you get all, it's basically a clear cut, but what are you left with? Right. You're left with your poorest formed, uh, lowest genetic potential. I'm talking about genetics. If I leave, and this is in essence, anti QDM, but in the forestry world, mm-hmm. you're leaving your, your, your junkiest stuff. So the trees that are there, they're going to throw seed, and they're they're seeding you in with trees that just don't want to grow that well. Um, yeah. Diameter limit harvests are not a good idea. Uh, you do not get the result in terms of good silvicultural results. You don't get you know high value trees growing. You don't you're not left with good value. The wildlife aspect will after the seventh year will go down, and then you're left with nothing. So th- those are not great. So I, the the term is derived from something called the selection system, which is why it's called select cuts. And the selection system is those 
the idea of creating an uneven aged landscape where you're taking one tree or small groups of trees and you have this kind of wave across the landscape of different age classes and different species. And if you think about what I said earlier with the, the tolerance of sun or shade in a situation where I have uneven age management uh, working for me, I have some pockets where there's some trees that like sun, some pockets where there's trees that grow in shade, um, and there's a good diversity of species that are growing in that. Right. So in terms of deer, well, and I've done this on the property I hunt on, uh, I think this is a really good technique, is to don't be afraid to do some even age management. It's a great tool. And if you have enough acreage, you should have a good rotation of even age management on your property. Have pockets out there that you're treating, say, every five to seven years where you have a good rotation that once that once that stand reaches stem exclusion, you have a new pocket getting put in. Not everybody has that scale of management, but that's something you can do or at least look around your property if you don't own enough acreage to see what kind of even age management's happening. You can mm-hmm. do that in Google Earth. Yeah. You know, look at, hey, you know, where, where property getting cleared, where clear cuts going in, you know. Uh, just know that there's a clock ticking when that goes in, and if you can implement a new stand of even age management, do it. And then basically boundary to boundary line in the, in the woods between those pockets where I'm doing even age management, I'm doing uneven age management. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not afraid in the woods to do small openings because, you know, that sunlight is going to come in. You're going to get seed to be thrown in. Um, from your even age stands, but you know, if I'm doing it around the perimeter of even age management, I'll do some pockets of openings because that seed will make its way in and it's, it, it all works. And you get this kind of real, uh, heterogeneous, you know, like really, uh, wavy, uh, property where you get lots of different age classes and species coming in and mm-hmm. deer like it and they'll oh, get covered everywhere. So in that example of that 100 acres before, if you're treating your 97 acres with three or four small clearings that is even age management, you know, two, three, four acre clearings, and then the remainder, say, 85 acres plus is all uneven age management, your property's potential just went through the roof in terms of cover and food. Good deal. I, I've got a – Adam and I are sitting back here smiling, and, and this is – Another reason why we brought you on, because in a couple of podcasts prior, I think it's three and four, we talk about the management that we're going to be doing on um, our home base, and you just kind of hit the nail on the head there. We've got some designated clear cuts in and around, situated um, throughout the select cuts, or the, the we're leaving a bunch of seed trees and taking some of the others. A lot of the slopes weren't basically cut years ago, lack of technology, um, so there's great big trees and we're leaving doing all this the the wave will be throughout the landscape basically on this 400 acre um timber cut so i'm going to send that to you just so you get uh get to look at it and kind of see what what we kind of have planned um because fortunately for us it sounds pretty similar to what you just described there and that's um kind of encouraging for us because we're we're really anticipating the uh the base logger getting in and and starting um, and he should be here within a week or two, uh, weather permitting. So it's it's encouraging and it's it's exciting. 
That, that's awesome. I'm, I'm happy to look at it too when you send me and I'll, I'll, I'll let you know what I think. I think one of the things that you guys have to your advantage and your clients do as well is, you know, as I mentioned earlier, your personal involvement and experience with deer hunting at the level that you guys do mm-hmm. and knowing what tree, I mean, you can identify a tree based on its bark or the seed it through or the leaf and sure. most landowners can't mm-hmm. and being able to say, these are the trees that we want um, to leave and, and market in that way. I mean, if a landowner, you don't have to be a forester to do, to do any of those things, but in the end, but most, I mean, I'm going to say uh, the stereotypical landowner just doesn't have the time because they don't do this as a career. Most mm-hmm. uh, most landowners have other jobs. I mean, that's how they pay for the land they have. And uh, they can go out there, and even if they know it, even if they know the same things that you guys know, and I and I know in terms of going able to say, that's an oak, that's a hickory, that's a cherry, um, and being able to t- determine that, once they try to tackle some of those things on their own, uh, working a food plot, just talking about the scale of size of the management, can be done in a couple weekends. But if you're trying to go out and cut 97 acres, the, the average landowner is not going to have the time or the wherewithal, or really they're not, they're not insured for that. Mm-hmm. And what are they going to do with all those wood? You know, all that wood. Um, I am a huge fan of going out and doing it on your own DIY deer management. I do it myself, right. but I also know when it comes down to the scale, shoot, I'm, I work for QDMA uh, full time. That's my job. So I didn't even mark the property I hunt on. We have a forester and that's what he does. Eight, you know, eight, nine, 10 hours a day, he's out marking timber. So I expressed to him and said, listen, you know, I, I'm licensed. I'm a wildlife biologist, but I want you to go mark the timber this way. And mm-hmm. he's got a crew in there cutting it, and it's the result that I wanted. So, I mean, here you go. I'm I'm trained. I have multiple degrees, and even I hired a forester. The landowners I work with hired a forester because that's what they do. Right. Just like I wouldn't want to, uh, you know, I can work on my truck if I if there's something wrong with it, but I also know a mechanic will do it a little faster and do it right. So. Way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Matt, one last thing before we wrap up. We want to talk about the, there's something we're all going to be, uh, I guess we're going to be seeing you and it's a big event that we're going to be doing down in New Orleans and, uh, it's the QDMA National Convention. I was hoping that you could, uh, give us a, a rundown of that and, and basically everything that someone could expect if they were to go. Absolutely, Adam. I'm super excited for you guys to be at our convention this year. We're in New Orleans in late July, uh, the 20th to the 23rd, and it's uh, in uh, collaboration, or I guess we're doing it at the same time. I'm not really sure what term I should use there, but uh, with the uh, Louisiana Sportsman Show, which is at the Superdome, the Mercedes-Benz Superdome. So we've had a bunch of conventions. You know, I said earlier I've been with QDMA for a while. And uh, this is actually a super exciting one because it's the most educational opportunities we've ever had. Just tons of seminars from lots of professionals. Um, that event starts on Thursday um, in the afternoon. We have uh, talks all on Thursday, on Friday. So Adam and Matt will be leading a, a session on Friday. Um, and we'll... We have uh, on Saturday as well uh, educational opportunities. There's banquets in the evenings. 
There's lots of opportunities for kids and uh, spouses to come, obviously with in coordination with the Expo. Um, the Expo is a pretty big thing uh, at the Louisiana Sportsman Show. There's sort of lots of booths to see and walk around. And uh, we have lots of, we have a little fundraising, but mostly it's about fun and family time. Um, we have about, uh, I think it's 15 speakers on the QDMA side, and then the Expos actually has a bunch of people speaking there as well. Um, what a great time to come out with your family. So if you're a QDMA member um, and feel like taking a little vacation, come on down to, to New Orleans. Um, Adam and Matt will be giving a talk called Be a QDM Architect. So uh, they'll be talking about taking a property and how to set it up from the, from the ground up, which I'm, I'm excited to watch and, and learn from you guys. And we are very excited for it as well. And and um, just again to everyone listening, if if this was informative, if you like this podcast, it's New Orleans going to be this on steroids with everyone talking. A lot of different oh, professionals yeah. down there. A lot um, of names that you dropped earlier. Yes, and uh, they're all going to be there. So it's very encouraging for for people who are hungry for information to get down there, enjoy the experience, and enjoy the the family fun atmosphere. And again, we're we're really looking forward to it. And Matt, thank you so much for that wealth of information. Um, I'm sure a lot of people are tired of writing and uh, taking notes on that. That was that was incredible. Um, thank you for your time. Oh, it's my my pleasure, guys, and I'm I'm honored that you asked me to be part of it. I'm looking forward to doing a lot more with with uh, Land and Legacy and you guys in particular in the future. So. I know you got a bright future, and I'm excited for you. So everything and anything we can do at QDMA, you just give us a call. Uh, the whole team at QDMA is uh, seeing what you guys are doing, and we're we're proud of you. That's awesome. We really appreciate that, Matt. Um, I guess we'll see you in sunny, hot, humid New Orleans in in June, July. Excuse me. I hope. You got it. I hope they have AC. I think I think they will. will <laughs> good. So we'll, we'll have a good time. No, no okay, problem. Guys. All right, thank you, sir. Take care. All right. Wow, that's all I got to say to that. That was a lot of information. Um, I'm I took I notes wore myself. My pencil down to the nub. Yeah, I had to resharpen the old school way with yeah. the little handheld sharpener there. That was a, an incredible, incredible time just listening to him. You know. I found myself just sitting back, and he was doing a great job of just pouring out information and just sitting back and listening to what he had to say. Through his years of experience and everything he's learned, I think there's a lot that every one of every one of our listeners and and including ourselves can learn from that. And uh, but that's that's pretty much it. We've uh, we've stretched the old clock out uh, a a good bit this week, and uh, I think that's going to wrap up this week's episode of uh, Land and Legacy Podcast. Matt, you got any final thoughts? I got a lot of thoughts. Well, before before we say final thoughts, you got anything you want to say? To, bye, uh, bye. I hope. I honestly, I, I hope that that was really, really informational. Again, Matt is is uh, very knowledgeable, knows exactly what he's talking about, and Cutie May is a huge resource for deer hunters and land managers. And again, if this information was was enjoyable, if you want to know more, check out the modules, check out the the steward classes, check out the articles online and the convention. Um, Sign up to be a QDMA member. Yeah, absolutely. Get the magazine. Yeah, um, new f- and it's and that's the other thing. It's fresh. It's current. Um, they work with a lot of universities who are doing the research, um, and and they're putting out great stuff um, on a daily basis on their Facebook pages, everything. Um, so if you like that. 
um, definitely go check them out. And uh, just, I, I don't know, for, for us, I'm encouraged. Um, no, we're on the right track, certainly, with our land and what um, our clients are doing as well. So, you know, this is awesome. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing, hearing the, the feedback on this podcast. Thanks for listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management Podcast. If you want to see more, check us out at landlegacy.tv or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Take pride in knowing that God has called us in Genesis 2-4 to work and take care of the land. So keeping that in mind, remember to do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God.